All right, well, this is a first. Greg said that a lot of you wanted a, or somebody thought it was a good idea, and so he thought it was a good idea. That's probably a better way to say it. Uh, a preview of the upcoming book. Uh, it's gonna be out in February or March. Uh, it's, I, I gave it to uh, Tom Horn, uh, Defender Publishing. So he's begged me for years to, to do something with him, and I finally sort of gave in. He can be very persistent. But this is, the book is gonna be like Unseen Realm. It's an academic book, hopefully it's readable. Um, but this is the title. Hey, Reversing Hermon, it's about specifically not the whole book of Enoch in the New Testament, but very specifically the chapter six through 16 in Enoch, which are, is the story of the Watcher's transgression. How that story sort of leaks into the New Testament in various places. And it's more than Peter, it's more than Jude, okay? But how that story leaks into the New Testament and sort of matters for New Testament theology. So that's, that's the whole guts of the book right there. Now, why, why did I think this would be a good idea? <laughs> uh, you know, the, the few notes up here, I mean, that I'll just give it to you in a nutshell. The, um, it's kind of amazing. This is also like Unseen Realm in this respect. I, I've said in, in many interviews that the dirty little secret of Unseen Realm is that nothing in the book is unique to Mike. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's true. Nothing in the book just sort of flipped, you know, popped out of my head. And, oh, this would be a good idea. I'll throw it in a book and people will like it. Okay, nothing like that. Everything in the book you can find in peer-reviewed scholarship. That's just what I do. I don't really know how to do anything else, so that's what you're going to get. Um, it's kind of amazing. Every chapter in this book, and the stuff we'll go through here, is either represented by journal articles, somebody's dissertation, a book, something like that. So this, it's the same goal, to try to take, again, high-end scholarship on, in this case, the story of Enoch, the transgressions, and then how that leaks into the New Testament. Try to take that stuff and then make it decipherable and digestible for somebody who's not a specialist. Okay? It's astonishing nobody's ever done that. Again, everything that's in the book is going to be traceable somewhere, but there isn't a single book, either in the academic world or in the popular world, where somebody's actually collected that stuff and put it between two covers and called it a book, which is just sort of astonishing to me. Now, this, just this last year, the first something sort of like that appeared I think, I can't remember who, I think it was either Oxford or Brill. Uh, somebody did, did something on the Gospels, Enoch and the Gospels. Um, but that is the first of its kind. So this book is going to be kind of unique. And, you know, hopefully, you know, you'll, you'll enjoy it as much as Unseen Realm. I'm, I'm taking for granted that most of you, if not all of you, have read Unseen Realm or sort of heard an interview about Unseen Realm because that was Greg's thing, you know, on the, on the website, make sure people know this. But as far as, again, that basic introduction, the Watcher story, Watchers is a biblical term. Again, it's only in Daniel. It does occur more frequently outside the Bible. But here's what's, what sort of drove the bus for me as far as picking this topic. It wasn't just that, hey, I could throw all this together and it, 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 there's so much of it, I can make a book out of it. It was kind of this question that uh, popped into my head one, at some point in an interview. Because uh, in Unseen Realm, you get, you get the answer to this question, but it's not your typical answer that most Christians you know, would give. If we ask the question, why is the world and all humanity so thoroughly wicked, 
what's the average Christian going to say? Default. Default. Okay, because that, that's what we're taught. And it's not that the answer isn't the fall. The answer is the fall plus two other things. Okay, so if you ask this question to an Israelite or a Second Temple period Jew, again, Second Temple period is academic academies for intertestamental period, roughly 500 BC, all the way to the destruction of the Second Temples. Second Temples built, you know, 516 or so all the way to 70 AD, that period, if you ask somebody living in that period who again was, was biblically literate, they had read their Bible and lots of other stuff in, in the, the serious Jewish tradition, and I would suggest, and what this book again attempts to show, even the earliest Christians, the, the very beginnings of what we call sort of the, the early church or the early church fathers, they would not have said only the fall they would have said, well, there was this thing, the fall. But they also would have said there was this thing that happened in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and also the whole Tower of Babel thing, the Deuteronomy 32 worldview that I talk a lot about. But for this you know, occasion, and of course this book, we're going to focus on the middle one. And this is a quote from, uh, I don't know if it's from me or from somebody else. That's from me. I can't even tell anyone. <laughs> if it's not from me, there'll be a source there. So I'm the source. <laughs> okay, a number of New Testament passages say what they say because they're literary expressions of a significant theme in New Testament theology. Again, if you're, again, if you ha if you're just walking in here and you've never read Unseen Realm, if I'd said that the, the Watcher story is a theme in New Testament theology, you'd think, who is this crazy person? Okay. Like, like we've never heard this. And, and you haven't. And I, it's, it's a shame that you haven't. But there's a big theme in New Testament theology, the reversal of the wickedness that, was, that has permeated the human race. And again, a big part of that is reflected in the book's title. Reversing Hermon alludes to the notion, hidden in plain sight in a surprising number of New Testament passages, that what happened in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 had to be reversed in part of restoring the original Edenic vision. That reversal was, is, and will be accomplished by the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So when, what I'm saying there is when a, especially a second temple Jew who was either looking for Messiah or in the, in the decades that followed the events of, of Jesus' life, you know, death, burial, and resurrection, they would have been thinking about their Messiah not just in terms of a guy who is from the line of David who's going to come here and he's going to deliver us, and they were always thinking military, okay? Who's gonna deliver us from oppression from the Romans. He's gonna restore the kingdom of, of Solomon and David. Uh, that's, that's not just what they're thinking. One of the things that they associated with the Messiah was he's not just gonna come back and deliver his people from oppression. He's gonna come back and undo the effects of all this garbage that has happened, you know, in antediluvian history, fall, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and the, the Deuteronomy 32, the Tower of Babel worldview. Now, the last one is real, is real familiar to, again, if you've read Unseen Realm, because reclaiming the nations is how you fix the, okay, the Babel problem, because you bring the nations, the Gentiles, back into the family of God. They're, the Messiah is for them as well as the Jew. So that's pretty familiar, of course, the fall is familiar. This, this middle part is quite unfamiliar. Now to orient you, 
This is a basic outline of what we call the Book of Enoch popularly. In academic talk and in, in the way the book gets cited, what you think of as the Book of Enoch is actually First Enoch. There are three books of Enoch. The first one is the one that, again, gets dated to prior to the New Testament era, okay, on into the cusp of the first century. The other two are later. Okay? So what we're talking about with the Book of Enoch that, again, you, you hear about a lot is First Enoch. And it's in the first part, Book of the Watchers, that our focus is going to be. First Enoch 6, 6 through 16 tells the story of the Watchers, whose primary sin is marriage with humans and procreation of giants. The watchers beget giants on earth by their union with human women. Out of these giants come evil spirits. Again, the origin of demons. We're never, we're never told specifically in the New Testament where demons come from. We are told that in 1st Enoch, and 1st Enoch gets it because it understands the original context of Genesis 6, the, the whole Mesopotamian backdrop of that, which we'll talk about today in more detail. So out of these giants come evil spirits that lead humanity astray. In the short term, the crisis of the Watchers is resolved when God sends the flood to cleanse the earth. Enoch is introduced in chapter 12 as a scribe whom the Watchers asked to intercede for them. He ascends to heaven on a cloud, comes before the heavenly throne in chapter 14 in a passage that is important for the history of Jewish mysticism. His intercession is rejected. Again, the, the Watchers are like repentant after God punishes them and they basically get a hold of Enoch. I don't know if they picked up the phone or whatever. You know, <laughs> we're never told. Hey, can you go talk to God for us? Because God really likes you. You're the one who was taken out from the earth and you walked with God. And can, can you t let him know that we're sorry? And, you know, will he forgive us? And God basically says, no, you know, to <laughs> you're toast. Uh, essentially is, you know, you're, you're going to, you're, you're in there until the time of the end. Uh, which I think, again, we'll, we'll touch on this today, is Revelation 9, when the Watchers are released. But uh, the Jewish traditions are, are pretty consistent here. So Enoch, again, you know, is, is asked to intercede. It's rejected. The Watchers abandon heaven for the attraction of the flesh. Enoch represents the opposite tendency. He's a human being who is taken up to heaven to live with the angels. So Enoch becomes this prototypical you know, good guy, you know, figure. Again, and even, even in that statement, this is from John, John J. Collins, his uh, article on Enoch, you can see a theme of reversal there too. Again, but this becomes really prominent when they start talking about Messiah. Now, why haven't you heard this before? Well, there are a number of obstacles to it. I would say, you know, again, just the way we're taught, there are points of incoherence in the way we're taught. You're taught to to avoid books that are not in your Bible, okay? Old and New Testament. And on one level, I think we can all understand that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that one of the jobs of the church is, is again, to, to prevent false teaching from coming in and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, there are things in extra biblical books that, you know, are, are deeply flawed and, you know, just kind of crazy talk too. But it misses the point that biblical writers read lots of stuff mm -hmm. that isn't in the Bible. They were like you. Surprise, surprise. They were people. And they read stuff. And what they read stayed in their head. And some of that stuff helped them articulate points that they made while they were writing. It's, it's just a very human, normal kind of thing. So for you to be taught to avoid reading that stuff 
immediately divorces you from the context of the writers. And so that my simple suggestion is, if you read that stuff, who, who cares if you think it's canonical or not? I don't think Enoch is canonical, but I don't really care. Because if you read it, you'll, it'll help you in some points follow what somebody in the New Testament is saying. If you just know what, what's sort of lurking in the background. Now, the early church, you had a few people defend uh, canonical status in this book. I give you in an, in an appendix all of the places where some early church father quoted Enoch as scripture. They do do that. A couple of them do that. So when you read things, I don't know if I have the quote here. Yeah, I do. Uh, now, in, in a paraphrase here, the bottom one. This is kind of representative. I'm not going to tell you what source it comes from because I don't want to, I don't want to ruin your enjoyment of the book because it's actually a good book. <laughs> The pseudepigrapha books are those that are distinctly spurious and unauthentic in their overall content and no such formula as it is written or the scriptures say is connected with these citations. That's just wrong. Okay, it's just wrong. There are Jews at Qumran who were not liberal. Okay, I hope you realize this. You know, the, the, the Jewish sect at Qumran formed their little cloister because they thought the Pharisees were compromisers. Okay, these, these were not liberals, okay? I mean, they're like nth degree just off the map in their conservatism. But yet they will quote Enoch on a couple of occasions in citation form, like as the scripture says, and then they'll quote three or four things and among them is first Enoch. Okay, they'll do stuff like that. So for a few, at least you know, one Jewish sect, this book was considered sacred. There are a few church fathers that also considered it sacred. Tertullian, going back here. Irenaeus, Origen, you know, kind of went back and forth. Clement, you know, back and forth. But Tertullian is sort of its biggest defender, and Irenaeus uh, endorses it when one or two places. But Irenaeus pulls some of his theology from Enoch, even without citing it. Now, we know that because we have the book, and we can go look it up, what he's quoting from. Uh, so these are some major, major figures. I, I doubt if we have a patristic scholar in here, but you've probably all heard these names. Okay, these are not insignificant people in the history of the early church. And they, they thought it should be in there, at least a couple of them, but eventually you know, they, they lost that debate. So the book itself, my book, is divided into these sections. So the first section, we go back into Genesis 6-4. There's three chapters in this section. The first one is going to look familiar because it, it's sort of a, a, a rewrite of, some, of the stuff in Unseen Realm, even though that covers like three chapters. I've sort of bunched it into one and rewritten some things. And then the second two, uh, the, the second chapter is going to be about the Book of Enoch itself. And then the third one is an entire chapter on the Mesopotamian context, which you do not get in Unseen Realm. You don't get the second chapter either. And then once sort of that's established, we go into the Gospels, the Epistles, and Revelation. Here are the appendixes. Again, I think the appendixes are, are pretty, I think they're worth the book itself, to be honest with you. Um, because these are the questions everybody asks. You know, who thought it was inspired? When do we date it? You know, where does it come from? The manuscript evidence. I give you a bibliography. Like, it's a limited, it's a real bibliography. It's an academic bibliography. I'm not citing, you know, I want to say some guy that was on coast to coast, but I was on coast to coast, so I can't really say that. <laughs> but you get the idea, okay? 
I'm not just citing Billy Bob, you know, who was abducted by aliens. I, I know about the Book of Enoch now. It's not that. And you're, you're laughing because you know that, that there are people out there like that. <laughs> uh, and then where does the New Testament allude to not just Enoch, but pseudepigrapha in general? There's a guy, a New Testament you know, geek, New Testament scholar who has collected all these, and I, I got permission from him to reproduce. He posted it online to reproduce that in an appendix. It's great because it does all the work for you. And then there's a little appendix on the Antichrist. We'll get to, to that. So let's jump into part one. Sin of the Watchers in its original context. Again, this is first Enoch material. I'm not going to quote Genesis 6 because you all know that. But let's, I, I, I'm guessing a lot of you have never read the Enoch story. So let's just go through some of the basic parts of it. When the sons of men had multiplied, and in those days beautiful and comely daughters were born to them, and the watchers, the sons of heaven, saw them and desired them, they said to one another, Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the daughters of men, and let us beget for ourselves children. And Shemhazah, their chief, said to them, I fear that you will not want to do this deed, and I alone shall be guilty of a great sin. So apparently it was his idea, and he's like, I don't want to only be blamed when this thing just goes to hell in a handbasket. And they all answered him and said, let us swear an oath. Let us all bind one another with a curse that none of us turn back from this council until we fulfill it and do this deed. Then they all swore together and bound one another with a curse. Now, you notice the, the deed, again, is cast in, in sexual tones. You know, let, let's, let's go have children. But the real crime, I don't think we should miss. Again, if Unseen Realm, there's actually two views of, of sort of the supernatural perspective of Genesis 6. I don't want to... I don't want to leave this section without saying this. The real crime is that they want to raise up their own nations. They want, they want their own populations. They want to do, they want to, they want to imitate God without his permission. It's kind of a Gnostic flavor to that, if you know a little bit about Gnosticism. So the, you know, this, is, this is what's going to become the, the real issue here. They were all of them 200, and they descended in the days of Jared, or Yared, onto the peak of Mount Hermon. Okay, Hermon is the key location. And they called the mountain Hermon because they swore and bound one another with a curse on it. Okay, this Hermon in Hebrew comes, is related to, it's a better way to say that same root from, as Kerem, Kerem. Again, the devote to destruction, to put under the ban, that sort of thing. So there's an association there with, between the terms. These and all the others with them took for themselves wives, and among them, such as they chose, they began to go into them and defile themselves through them. Again, they defiled themselves. This is a transgression of heaven and earth. To teach them sorcery and charms, and to reveal to them the cutting of roots and plants, and they conceived from them and bore to them great giants. Asael, another character, taught men to make swords of iron and weapons and shields and breastplates and every instrument of war. He showed the metals of the earth, how they should work gold to fashion it suitably, and concerning silver to fashion it for bracelets and ornaments for women. He showed them concerning antimony and eye paint and all manner of precious stones and dyes. Now you're probably thinking of the passage in 1 Peter already about the cosmetic you know, issue. And there was much godlessness upon the earth, and they made their ways desolate. Shemchaza taught spells in the cutting of roots. And then you get a list of which 
watcher taught what to people. You, know, you get this whole list, you get signs of shooting stars, signs of the earth, signs of the sun, signs of the moon. Again, astrological stuff. They all began to reveal mysteries to their wives and to their children. As men were perishing, the cry went up to heaven. So in Enoch, even in this section and elsewhere in the book, the problem with all this isn't that we know how to make something that's made of iron or, or we use you know, eye paint to make ourselves beautiful. The problem is what people did with it. It corrupted them. So it, 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 it takes the problem of, of lust and makes it worse. It takes the problem of just any technology and makes it worse. People began to use things for, for self-destruction, for destruction of their fellow man, that sort of thing. So this is what the passage is going through. In a nutshell, what Enoch, first Enoch is saying here is, look, we know we had this thing the fall, and we know people are sinners. But they consistently blame the watchers for teaching people how to be even better sinners. Okay, and in other words, giving them more tools to destroy themselves. And this isn't much of a much of a conceptual leap anyway for us because any technology that we have can be used for the same thing. Okay, I can commit horrendous crimes with a phone. Okay, I can now I can blow things up with a phone. I mean, you you can just use something that ordinarily, it's it's just simple. It's technology. I mean, I could I can commit a crime with a fork. I can stab someone. You know. It, Anything that, that we have you know, can be used to an evil end. And that's really what, what Enoch is going to be angling for here. And they blame part of it on people, the fall, because of just who we are, you know, our, our internal sinful impulse, the lack of, we don't have God's nature, God's character. We make choices to do evil. So people are, are going to get plenty of blame. But then people being taught and how to express their own impulses, their own wickedness in various ways. That's a big deal in Second Temple Judaism. First Enoch 9, you have four angels, archangels, Michael, Sariel, Raphael, and Gabriel, send the terrible, see the terrible events unfolding on earth. They approach God for a solution. Basically, you've got to do something about this. You know, Look at what's going on. You have to do something about this. The four archangels say to God in 1 Enoch 9 to 11, You know all things before they happen. You see these things and you permit them. And you do not tell us what we ought to do with them with regard to these things. I mean, we're, we're here to help. You know, what should we do? God responds in 1 Enoch 10 with the news that should sound familiar to biblical readers. This is when you get the flood. When the Most High said, the Great Holy One spoke, He sent Sariel to the son of Lamech, which was Noah saying, go to Noah and say to him in, in my name, hide yourself, reveal to him that the end is coming, the whole world will perish, tell him that a deluge is about to come, so on and so forth. So in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 precedes the flood, okay? It's just that in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, those four verses to us, key thought here, to us lack context, we read them and it's like, well, what does that have to do with the flood? You know, why are these four verses even here? I mean, you know, you get, you get to verse 5 and okay, the, everything that man does is wicked. We get that. And then Noah starts to have this conversation with God and then we have the flood narrative. Well, what do the four verses have to do with this? We lack the context. An Israelite, again, a literate Israelite, would not have lacked the context. That's the disconnect. 
a literate Israelite would know, all oh, these four verses sort of compress this story that, you know, is a really a response to Mesopotamia, because Mesopotamia has the same story. And they, the writer just sort of took it for granted that people are going to know what I'm talking about. I don't need to just rehash all this stuff. And this is a precursor to the flood. People living in the second temple period had the context as well. We just don't because we don't read that stuff. We don't read the, the, the literature of the great wider world to know these four verses in Genesis 6 are responding to something. This stuff in First Enoch is recovering or preserving or transmitting the larger story that Genesis 6, 1 through 4 was a response to. Okay, we lack all of that. And unfortunately, again, because of the history of the Christian church, we not only lack it, it's been kept from you. You have been cut off from it. Again, it, it's not like, oh, the gospel's really an Enoch. You know, we're missing. No, that isn't the point at all. The point is that if you had read this, there are, again, play, things you would read in your Bible that would, okay, the lights go on. I, I, I kind of get what they're talking about here because I've read this other thing that they were familiar with. So we have an immediate you know, disconnect. Even with the flood story, we just get these four verses. So again, just to summarize here, we have... You know, the flood story, the judgment here in the second half, until the day of their judgment consummation. Again, the watchers are, are imprisoned until, you know, until the eternal judgment is consummated. They're sent to the abyss, to the prison. Again, that's, that's language you get in the New Testament where they will be confined forever. And at the time of judgment, it's not really forever. It's, it's, it's until the time of the judgment. Well, when's the time of the judgment in biblical theology? It's at the end of days. What's the end of days? It's the day of the Lord. It's the return of the Messiah, all this kind of stuff. Okay? So there, there is a finite you know, end point to this. But that's where they are. So this is a summary from, I believe, Reed's book. Yep. The birth of the giants is explored in terms of the mingling of spirits and flesh. Angels properly dwell in heaven. Humans properly dwell on earth. But the nature of the giants is mixed. This transgression of categories brings terrible results after the phys their physical death. The giants' demonic spirits come forth from their bodies to plague humankind. The citations there are from 1st Enoch. According to 1st Enoch 16, the angelic transmission of heavenly knowledge to earthly humans can also be understood as a contamination of distinct categories within God's orderly creation. As inhabitants of heaven, the watchers were privy to all the secrets of heaven. Their revelation of this knowledge to the inhabitants of the earth was categorically improper as well as morally destructive. If you're interested, again, in look at the title of her book, Fallen Angels in the History of Judaism and Christianity. Reed's book is a book about how early Judaism and early Christianity looked at Enoch, the whole book, and specifically this story. So it's, it's a little older now, but it's still a great book. Context. Okay, now that you sort of have the, the, the Enoch story in your head, where does it come from? Again. It, well, it comes from the same, you know, not source. It is a response to, and I think a, a, a fuller preservation of, the, the episode that we find in Mesopotamian literature associated with the flood. The biblical stuff, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, this whole weird episode, is a response to something that the Mesopotamians wrote about and believed 
and thought it was great, thought it was good. The Israelites thought it was wicked and evil. So there's an opposition there. And so Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is in the Bible to tell the Israelites that these events that preceded the flood were not good. They were evil. And it's going to ripple out into biblical history in all sorts of ways to sort of make that case. It's, the story centers on the Apkalu. The Apkalu are the culture heroes from before the flood. The phrase culture heroes refers to the great civilizers. So, you know, Thomas Edison would be a culture hero for us because, you know, he harnessed the power of electricity to give us lights, okay? People, you know, figures who do something really important to civilize life, okay? That's what a culture hero is. In Mesopotamian thinking, the Apkalu are the great culture heroes from before the flood in the service of Ea. Ea was the god of wisdom. A variety of wisdom traditions from the antediluvian, the pre-flood period, were supposedly passed on by the Apkalu. There were seven of them in one particular story. The seven sages were created in the river. The Akkadian for that term is in the abyss. So right away, you're, you know, you're getting a little, little creepy thought here. Okay, they're, they're from like the underworld place. But the Mesopotamians thought they were great guys. Okay, these, they're, they're wonderful. The seven sages were created in the river, the abyss, and served as, quote, those who ensured the correct functioning of the plans of heaven and earth. They were really smart. Following the example of Ea, they taught mankind wisdom, social forms, and craftsmanship. That's from DDD. The Apkalu, then, were the wise divine beings from the abyss, from the underworld, the place opposite the heavens. They were responsible for maintaining the correct balance between heaven and earth. That was the will of the greater gods. And they possessed knowledge from the divine world that sort of made heaven and earth tick. Again, they knew lots of stuff. Well, the scribes of Babylon living after the flood took great pains to establish the notion that their own knowledge, you know, what we scribes know, and therefore the greatness of Babylon. This is why we're so smart, and this is why Babylon's so great. Why? Because we, our knowledge has been inherited from the Apkalu. Like they were our teachers and our mentors. Our knowledge, the reason Babylon is so great, again, in the eyes of the Mesopotamian, is that what we know, what we have built, the civilization that we have created and fashioned, and that is at the top of the heap, there is no greater place than Babylon. All of that comes from the gods. It's divine knowledge. And we as scribes are sort of the gatekeepers to that knowledge. Again, there's a little bit of a propaganda feel to this, obviously. But this is the explanation for why people should listen to them and why Babylon is so great and so awesome. Now, the question, though, that surfaces is, well, these guys were from before the flood, so how did you guys inherit this knowledge? Because the Mesopotamians had the same flood story, and great, the great flood. So here's, here's how they argue it. The Mesopotamian text, again, this is very distilled. They've got a whole chapter of citations on this. Mesopotamian material lists seven pre-flood kings. There's a particular text that actually gives you a king list, you know, kind of like the stuff you see in the Bible where so-and-so king reigned X number of years and all that kind of stuff. 
Well, there's a particular text that lists the king, and then next to the king's name is the name of the Apkalu who helped him be king, helped him, you know, have the civilization flourish. Okay? <coughs> Gave him the knowledge he needed to run, you know, Babylon, okay? So there's seven of these guys before the flood. They are assisted by a specific Apkalu. Then after the flood, the text has four Apkalu, and they are described this way. They are of human descent. The pre-flood Apkalu are consistently described as being gods, divine beings. But after the flood, no, they're of human descent, and they are only two-thirds Apkalu. The fourth one is actually given a number. He's a He's mixed, he's a hybrid, you know, whatever term you want to use there. It's the same description, although in the text it's not the same person. It's the same description given to Gilgamesh, who is also referred to as Lord of the Apkalo in something called a cylinder seal. Gilgamesh was an Apkalo. Gilgamesh was two-thirds divine. Gilgamesh was also a giant in the Mesopotamian text. Again, Gilgamesh is probably the most familiar figure from the ancient Near East and, you know, just in popular circles. Well, he turns out to be a key figure here because he is a post-flood Apkalu who is a mix divine and human and also happens to be a giant along with these other guys. So you see, you know, in this book, the last note there, you may have not have known this, but Gilgamesh is actually mentioned by name in something called the Book of the Giants from Qumran. The Book of the Giants is not part of First Enoch, but it is described by scholars as Enochian material because a lot of the content of the Book of Giants you can also find in the Book of First Enoch. And there, there are a couple other, other giants named there as well in connection with the flood before and after, so on and so forth. But Gilgamesh is actually in there. So th just that one line, I just want to pause here a second, just that one text tells you that the Jews of this period were reading Mesopotamian stuff. Because you don't just start writing a book and, oh, I need a book, I need a name for this giant. What should I call him? What should I, oh, Gilgamesh. Well, that sounds good. Where'd that pop into my, no, that isn't how it happens. They're reading Mesopotamian material. They had inherited Mesopotamian stuff. It's part of their framework. It's part of their, the scholars would call, cognitive frame of reference. They were just familiar with the material. And they could tell, they knew, because they were familiar with the material, they could look back at Genesis 6, 1 to 4 and say, oh yeah, we know what's going on there. We know what that's about. And again, it, they, they write about what that's about in books like the Book of the Giants, books like First Enoch. Again, this is all a matrix of ideas. And the, and the reason, again, it's unfamiliar to us is because now, I hate to put it this way because it sounds pejorative, but I'm going to say it this way. It's because we're not allowed to read that other stuff. <laughs> um, if you did, you would just the lights would just go on in different places as you, you know, expose yourself to material. Again, the implication of all that, I mean, just look at the list here. The implication is that the post-flood Apkala were the result of intercourse with human women. Now, in her essay on the Apkalu, uh, a scholar named Ann Kilmer, she wrote an article. It's actually a chapter of a book. It's kind of it's hard to find. I don't think it's available online for free. If, if, you have, if, you're, if you were blessed enough <laughs> 
to get in on the Divine Council bibliography, bibliography project, this article is in that collection. Um, but she, she actually picked up on this years ago, but didn't say a whole lot about it. She, she writes, humans in Apkalu could presumably mate, since we have a description of the four post-flood Apkalu as of human descent, the fourth being only two-thirds Apkalu as opposed to the pre-flood pure Apkalu and subsequent human sages. After these op, the, the, the mixed Apkalu die off, there's another term that's used in Mesopotamian text. It's the Umanu, and that was the term for scribe. So you can see what the, what, you know, what, what the texts are suggesting. Divine knowledge comes from these pre-flood guys. It survived the flood in these hybrid guys, and we inherited it. That's why you should listen to us. That's why we're so smart. That's why Babylon's so great. Again, this is, this is what they're doing. This is how they're framing it. Now, the apparent meeting with humans displeased Marduk. Marduk is the high god of Babylon. He's the top of the heap. In the era epic, he judges the Apkalo. He, this is Marduk speaking here in the text. I sent craftsmen. That's how the Apkalo are called, you know, craftsmen, the, the guys who know lots of stuff, okay? I sent craftsmen down to the Apsu, again, back to the abyss. I ordered them not to come up. I changed the location of the Mesu tree and the El Meshu stone and did not show it to anybody. Now that reference is lost on us, but again, this is a quotation from uh, again another particular scholar. Relocation of a tree, this is from Anus, I believe, and stones is also a motif in the era epic where Marduk during the flood changed the location of this tree and the stone in the context of sending the sages down to the, to the abyss, to the Apsu. The garden with trees and, and precious stones. Again, what does that make you think of? Ezekiel 28. I mean, it's, it's the Edenic description. It's the same thing. Trees and stones. It's, it's, again, it's not a coincidence. And if you read Ezekiel 28, it's very Canaanite in flavor. And the Canaanite divine council stuff, again, plays off of part of the same framework as the wider ancient Near East. Again, these are not coincidences. This is just literary artistry from people familiar with lots of material, and they're writing a book and they're throwing it in. This is how books are made. It's not, you know, it's not, you know, a, a terrible surprise here. It's very comparable to the garden. And then in the end of the, the hero's journey in, in the Gilgamesh epic, again, Gilgamesh is seeking what? Eternal immortality, eternal life. He goes to where the gods are in this, in this garden. Does this sound familiar? Okay. And it should. It's impossible to miss in these words Ezekiel's language of Eden there in chapter 28. Combines garden imagery, mountain imagery, lustrous precious stones, so on and so forth. The imagery from Marduk's comments about what he had done to the Apkalo, in effect, points to the banishment of the Apkalo from his own presence. Marduk's ticked. He said, you guys did this. You know, we, you know, we up here, okay, in, in the heavenly places, we sent the flood because we wanted, you know, the slate wiped clean. And what you guys did was you went down there and preserved not only, you know, some of the people, again, the wider flood story, but also the, the thing that sort of just made the situation bad to begin with, or un, at least unfavorable, maybe to them, or to us, but not to them, because they loved, you know, having all this divine knowledge. This is, you know, they thought this is what made them great. And now here you go again. You, you've interfered, and this is all going to, again, you know, start up again. We don't want humans knowing what we know. 
we want them lesser. We want them, you know, if, if you're familiar with Mesopotamian stories, why, why were humans created? To be slaves of the gods. Okay? So Marduk is ticked. So he sends them back to the abyss. You're going you're gonna to just be here now. You're going to be cut off from my presence. And this is where you're going to stay. Again, does it sound familiar? This is what happens in, in, the, in the Enochian story we just read. It's the same set of details. They get punished. They get sent to the abyss. They're imprisoned there. Here's the summary. Again, I'm not going to read you all, all the points. But every point of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and every point of Enoch's version of it aligns with Mesopotamian material. Every point. What do I learn from that? What does that tell us? Again, it tells us that the people who are writing this stuff, Jewish people, Jewish scribes, again, these are not like theological illiterates, okay? And they're not just, you know, crazy liberal Jews, okay? These are, the, these are the guys who are in charge of transmitting the Hebrew Bible, transmitting the, the, the traditions, you know, of, of their own people. They understand and they know the larger picture against which Genesis 6, 1 through 4 responds. They understand it, they've read it, they get it. And in their own literature, they not only play off Genesis 6, 1 through 4, but they play off the bigger backdrop and they preserve it for us. And the point of my book is, is to say, well, that isn't all that happens because since from the second temple period, we get guys like Matthew, <laughs> we get guys like Mark, we get guys like John, we get guys like Peter. Okay, this is their, this is their world. The early church, the, the 12 apostles, again, shocker of shockers, were Jews and they had read stuff. Like what a profound thought. They weren't illiterates, okay? They were Jews who had been exposed to this material and again, they're, they're, they're providentially chosen, they're providentially prepared to produce the books that we now call the New Testament. And in the course of writing those things, they're going to use stuff that's floating around in their head to express themselves, to express certain ideas. And, and God's good with that because he picked them. Okay, he picked them, put them in the right time and place and said, I'm going I'm to prompt you now to write something down that I want preserved for posterity. But we wouldn't know that unless we went looking, okay, unless we thought about uh, what they're doing. Now, I, I've made the comment before that I think our doctrine of inspiration, I think, is undermined and made vulnerable when we divorce the human element from it. Okay, the books of your Bible do not just come by mental download. The prophet's not getting up, making breakfast, gets zapped, his, he loses control of his mind, his automatic writing like in the X-Files, okay? He wakes up and says, wow, I can't wait to read what I just wrote. Okay, that is not how the New Testament itself describes inspiration. But we think like the people who produced the books of the New Testament weren't thinking about anything. Like they just got zapped and downloaded. Okay, when, when you strip the human element out of it, when you make it this paranormal object, 
it's, it's very understandable if you, if you believe that inspiration operates this way that you don't want people believe, reading anything else. You don't want them exposed to what actually the writers had exposed themselves to. And so th this problem, this disconnect of how, how to understand what's in our own Bible is a lot bigger than, than we sort of imagine it. You know, we, we, we're, you're talking about centuries, millennia of accrued history of, of looking at the Bible in a, cert, in a certain way. And it, again, it's not sinister. It's not like a, some cabal somewhere. We've got to cut people off from anything that's not, it, that's, that's not it. It's just sort of a reflexive way it's taught. It's, it's, it's nothing, you know, deeply sinister. But the effect of it is we have people who are underexposed to the context of the Bible and then they have trouble understanding significant portions of it. That's the problem. And that, that's, again, what I'm trying to put a little dent in. Now, the, the other three parts, let me do a time check here. Yes, those of, those of you have noticed that I actually have an iPhone this time. <laughs> and I'm using it. Okay, a little time check there. Now, what I, what I do from this point on in the book is, again, I, I go through all of that in three chapters because I want the story in your head and I want the context in your head. And now we're going to traipse through the New Testament and see where does this stuff show up? If we were thinking about all this stuff, what would we see in a given passage that would sort of jump out at us and, again, put us on different lines of, of thinking? And I would suggest lines of thinking that we're in the, in the writer's heads. Now, for the gospel section, I do something with the birth, the genealogy, and the ministry of Jesus. The last one, about two-thirds of that chapter uh, is from Unseen Realm. I throw in the story of Legion, okay, which is new. But the first two, again, you would have had to re have read, really, the, the portent, the second novel, to get any of that, or maybe come across something on YouTube. But as far as the birth, the birth of Jesus would have alerted first literate first century Jews that the Messiah's arrival would reverse the sin of the watchers. And you say, that's, that's just crazy talk. How, how in the world would, would hearing about the birth of the Messiah have made anybody think about Genesis 6, okay, the watchers thing? How, how, how does that work? It works because of Romans 10, specifically Romans 10, 18 and following, Revelation 12, which is the, the astral signage of, of the birth of the Messiah, and again, various Second Temple traditions about the birth of the Messiah. Now, to summarize all that real quickly, again, you may have seen, uh, how many of you have seen the, the YouTube thing of, of me going through Revelation 12 about the, the astral, astral prophecy? Oh, very few of you, wow. Okay, during Q&A, if you want to drill down there, we could, but I'll give it to you in summary form. In Romans 10, Paul is taught, it's the famous passage where Paul is talking about, hey, you know, how are people going to hear about the Messiah unless somebody tells them? Duh. Okay, you know, and so we have this problem, you know, the, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel, and no one's going to hear without a preacher, and the preacher has to be sent, and that, that whole famous passage. Then Paul asks a rhetorical question. Have they not heard? And you, you expect him to say, well, of course they haven't heard, Paul. That's why you're so exercised. That's why you're so bent out of shape here. And you're telling us we need to go and be witnesses. But he doesn't say that. Paul says, indeed they have. And you're like, what? 
well, what was the other 17 verses about? <laughs> How does this fit? And, and he quotes as his proof text that they have all heard. He quotes Psalm 19 in Genesis 10, 18. Psalm 19 is the passage. The heavens declare the glory of God. Okay. There are, there are four views, four verbs of messaging in the first couple verses. Heavens declare, you know, they, they pronounce, they utter, they have a voice, okay, all this stuff. And it's just sun, moon, stars, and all this kind of thing. And, and the line that Paul quotes is, their voice has gone out through all the earth. The voice of what? Well, the voice of the heavens. And that's the Septuagint. The Masoretic text actually reads, their line has gone out through all the heavens. And I, I, actually, I actually like the Masoretic text there because it's a reference to the ecliptic, the line in the sky. The ecliptic is where the zodiac constellations follow on an annual basis. So I can't prove it, but what I think Paul was referring to is Revelation 12. When John says, he, talking about the birth of the Messiah, it's Revelation 12, he says, I looked up at the heavens and saw. I think John actually meant what he said. <laughs> Okay, we've got the, the woman with the 12 stars around her head, the sun in her midst, the moon at her feet. You can actually plot this out on an astronomy program. And when you do, there are other things that aren't mentioned in Revelation 12 that are really significant, again, to a, a literate person in the first century. You've got a conjunction of Regulus and Jupiter, the king star with the king planet, in the constellation of Leo. Okay, the lion, the tribe of Judah, okay. For a Gentile who doesn't know anything about the Hebrew Bible, that conjunction is important because both of them were signs of a royal divine birth. And here they're conjoined. And for a Jew, it's in the constellation of Leo. You have a 90-minute window when all these things are... It's actually 80 minutes. Uh, somebody corrected me the other day. <laughs> Got an astronomer geek out there. Okay. All right. I'll try to remember that. I'll have, to, I'll have to just throw away all my books now. Um, but you have, a, you have a really small amount of time, okay, where, where all this can occur. And if you plug it into an astronomy program, you get the birth of the Messiah in September, on September 11th, 3 BC. 3 BC is not a problem. Everybody says, oh, it can't be 3 BC because then Herod would have to die in 1 BC. And we all know Herod died in 4 BC. Yeah, except for studies that have shown that 1 BC works quite well which I've recently posted on my website. I did a happy birthday to Jesus thing on September 11th. <laughs> you know, but what makes it important is that date in the Jewish calendar is Tishri 1. Tishri 1 was the date in the Old Testament when you inaugurate the reign of your next king. Tishri 1 was also thought to be the birth date of Noah. So Jesus, the Messiah, is the new Noah. Okay, you're starting to see how Genesis 6 sort of creeps into the picture here. What, what was significant about Noah? Noah's survival, Noah's presence on the earth post-flood signaled, you know, it was supposed to signal the end of the watchers, the end of all this wickedness, the end of all this garbage, okay? There are passages that refer in, again, Dead Sea Scroll text to the chronology of the flood, Okay, to you know, some of this astronomical stuff going on. Specifically, they, they link it to the constellation of Orion, which in Aramaic is the constellation of Nephilah. Okay, it's the giant, because Orion was a giant. I mean, you have, all the, you have this concatenation of thoughts that, again, to a literate Jew, 
if they had looked, read John, or, you know, John, Revelation is the last book of the New Testament. So John got this information from somewhere, maybe Mary, maybe the disciple, who knows, you know, he's one of the 12. But he writes it down. And if you had been exposed to that, you're thinking, wow, look at, look, if, if this is what was in the sky, it means this and this and this and this and this. And to a Gentile, all those things are consistent because we've got the conjunction, we've got Jupiter, we've got Regulus, we've got Orion, we've got all this stuff. So when Paul says, yeah, they did know. Okay. I don't believe personally that what Paul is referring to is like, um, you all know who D. James Kennedy is, familiar name? D. James Kennedy believed that you could get the whole, the whole plan of salvation out of the, the constellations of the Zodiac. I think that goes too far. I don't believe that. But what I do believe that you could know is that a divine king had been born. I think that is what Paul's tracking on. Again, I can't prove that specifically. There's no verse, there's no footnote in, in Romans 10, 18 that says, go look at Revelation 12. Because Revelation 12 wasn't written yet. So we can't quote it. But I think that's what he's tracking on. But if the, the point is for the book here, if you had that stuff in your head, somebody born on that day who turns out to be this Jesus of Nazareth, who's walking around doing all sorts of miracles and saying, like, I'm the guy. Okay, that would have meant something to you. Okay, that would have meant this is the guy who is going to somehow reverse the effects of the wickedness of the world. Okay? It's not a, it's not a terribly deep thought, but to sort of track with it the way they would have tracked it, you know, is a different story. Uh, the genealogy, in a nutshell, why are the four women in the genealogy there? They may or may not all be Gentiles, probably at least one of them, one or two. Uh, some people argue all four of them are. And, well, it's, it's really not important if they're Gentiles, but why are they the ones included? Quote here uh, from, uh, her name is Amy Richter. This is from her dissertation. She says, while the inclusion of women in biblical genealogies isn't unusual in itself, there are 14 such women in other genealogies, namely 1 Chronicles 2. The inclusion of these four women is all the more odd. You know, who are they? Rahab. Anybody name them? You got Rahab, Ruth. See, the, the, the neglected, the, the Bathsheba, and Judah and Tamar. Okay? So, the quote here is like, if you'd think if you were going to put in four important women, you'd pick Sarah, Rebecca, okay, Rachel. I mean, major figures in the Torah, but they're not in. They don't get in. The four that do are sort of just kind of a mystery. Um, again, short version of this is that what Richter does in her dissertation, it's, it's, it's pretty recent. She did it at Marquette, which is a, a school that's becoming known for Second Temple studies. Her argument is that the reason these four women are in the genealogy is that there is something in their story, either something they did or something done to them, that has something to do with sexual transgression and the vocabulary used to describe the person and these events borrows vocabulary from Genesis 6. And so Richter argues that can't be a coincidence. And her argument is these four women are in here because 
There are four women who have scandalous histories or had something terrible happen to them in the line of the Messiah. And so the telegraphing, her, her belief is that, and I think she makes a really good case for it. The point is not, the important point isn't these women and, and what happened to them and the vocabulary itself, it's who they produce. Who they help to produce. Well, who's on the, the final end of the genealogy? It's Jesus of Nazareth. And so the one who, whose genealogy it is, is going to reverse the effects again of the four people in the genealogy that had these transgressive histories that point back in some way to Genesis 6. So she believes that Matthew essentially encrypted, I mean, for people who knew, knew their stories, it wouldn't really be encryption, but for us it sort of is. People would have, would have read the genealogy and asked, well, why are these women and not all the famous ones? And then as they thought about their histories, it's like, oh, okay, well, boy, they, her story goes back there, her story goes, uh, they all go back there. That, that must mean something. Matthew's trying to tell us something. And what he's trying to tell us is that these four women who you associate as Jews with this event, they're going to produce the, the one who undoes this. They're going to play a role here. So, again, the whole chapter on that. The ministry, again, two, two of the three things here are familiar for, to Unseen Realm readers. In regard to Legion, if you have your, well, you don't, you don't need to look it up. I've given you enough here. Um, the exorcism of Legion is, more, is, is about more than suicidal swine. It's about theological messaging, which practically everything in the Gospels is. Legion recognizes that Jesus is rightful Lord of the country of the Gerasenes, which is part of old Bashan. But it, in Jesus' day, it was under Gentile dominion. Now, if you look up Mark 124, Jesus is exercising demons in Jewish territory. And if you compare that with Mark 5, where they're in the, the, the land of the Gerasenes, it's Gentile territory, the way that Legion addresses Jesus is significant because when they're when he's in Gentile territory exercising demons anybody want to guess how Jesus is addressed he is the son of the most high most high is the key term where do we see most high language that's that matters for for this this whole supernatural theology it's the Deuteronomy 32 thing Okay, when the Most High divided up the nations, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. But Israel is Yahweh's portion. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. Most High is a term you would use if you recognize this is the Most High God. And the territory that we control here that the people around us think is Gentile turf really isn't. Okay, it belongs to him. So he can go over to the Jews and exercise demons there, but to make the point that, oh, I'm not just the Messiah for the Jew. I'm not just here to reclaim this little thing about the size of New Jersey, okay? I'm not just here to take that back. I'm also Lord of all the territory. Okay, I'm the son of the Most High. I am the rightful heir to your turf too. And so again, it's theological signaling so again, just hinging on, and again, this isn't new to me. Scholars have noticed this for a long time. You know, why is legion, why this verbiage, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I included that in the chapter. When we get to the epistles, 
it, how many of you follow the podcast? <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> you know what's going. <laughs> yeah, a handful of you. <clears throat> the depravity chapter and the head covering chapter are two things that I did podcast episodes on. In this chapter, again, I, I get to actually give you the textual citations in the chapter. And then the baptism one is, is really uh, a a slight rewrite of something in unseen realm. But the depravity, the key verse is Genesis 3.19. When Paul is talking about the law, okay, the law was added. Uh, you know, it, it's the same passage where he talks about the law, you know, essentially, you know, being handed down by angels and whatnot. So I do a little bit of that in unseen realm. But I don't do anything with, with the important phrase here. It says, the law was added because of transgressions. Okay, because of transgressions. Notice it's plural. Okay, it doesn't say the law was added because of a transgression. Because what, what, what scholars typically do is they'll read Galatians 3.19 and they'll think, oh, well, the law was added because of what happened in Eden. Okay, you know, it's a reference to the fall. And this chapter is, is based, again, large, some, this, he's also from Marquette. Uh, in his doctoral work, a guy named, uh, oh, his last name's Stuart. can't remember his first name now. Uh, it'll, it'll come to me. But he, he did a, a paper at SBL, which is the Society of Biblical Literature, a few years ago. And the paper was entitled something like the, the, the Law and Transgressions and the Bastard Spirits and the Birth of the Son of God. And so I looked at that in the program and I thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be at that one. Because <laughs> I couldn't figure out for the life of me, what is this guy going to do? And it, it was awesome. Tyler Stewart, it was just awesome. And, and I, I, afterwards, I got his paper. But he, he argues, and it, 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 I can give you the paper. I, I actually posted this on my website. Uh, and again, he, he said I could do that. He argues that when Paul says the law was added because of transgressions, he's not thinking about Eden. Just whose transgressions are we talking about? He's thinking of the watchers and their corruptive influence on, on humanity. And so he goes through a whole panoply of Second Temple stuff and, and some grammatical stuff. And again, he says, if you read it this way, it answers certain questions that come in the chapter later on that scholars have kind of struggled with. You know, what was Paul thinking? Because if you're tracking on Eden, then, then some of the proposed answers or some of the things Paul says don't seem to quite fit. And Stuart's like, yeah, there's a reason they don't fit because he's not thinking that. If he's thinking this, then what he says over here and here and you know, half a dozen other places makes sense. And so since Galatians 4, again, talks about the birth of the Son of God and, the, you know, in, in its relationship to the law and, you know, how we're heirs and sons and all this kind of stuff, he links the two things again. He's saying, again, the birth of the Messiah is the, key, is the real thing that would reverse the transgressions, not the law. The law was powerless to reverse these transgressions. The law was sort of like, you know, to, to uh, kind of either forestall or put a fence around or, or you know, hold in the wickedness to, to, to a certain extent. But it, it couldn't really do anything more than that. And in fact, it became a thing that people would resist, you know, again, because they're sinners. So it's a really, it's a really interesting proposition. But 
I give you a whole chapter again of his argument with the passages and whatnot, and then talk about how it might fit in the bigger picture. I, th I think he presents a really good case. The head covering, just go listen to episode 95. <laughs> um, the head covering, the, the issue there is the phrase, because of the angels. And people have wondered about, well, why, you know, why is Paul talking about, you know, the, this head covering thing and women, you know, uh, first part of the chapter, they should have their head covered. Then, then he, he changes and says, well, they do have a head covering. It's their hair. And, you know, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this because of the angels. It's like, what in the world is this guy on? You know, like, <laughs> what is he talking about? This chapter, again, and that episode of the podcast, this is going to sound, I always have to say it this way, this is going to sound like the craziest thing you've ever heard. So I'm, I'm just prepping you. I'm just prepping you if you've never heard this. Just go back and listen to episode 95 or get the book when it comes out. There's a guy named Troy Martin. He teaches at Xavier now, or he did when he, when he wrote these articles. But I came across, a, it was a series of three articles printed over the course of 11 years. It tells you how fast things get published in journals. But the first one was Martin's article where he argued that the head covering, okay, the woman's hair is her, is her parabolion, the head covering, is actually in Greek medical texts, the word for testicle. And you think, what in the world does that have to do with anything? His whole article is going through Greek and Roman, Greco-Roman medical texts and showing, and he quotes Hippocrates a lot, he quotes Aristotle. They believed that a woman's hair assisted in fecundity. That is, when a woman had sex with a man, her hair, they believed, actually helped draw the semen up into her uterus through, through the course of her body so that she would get pregnant. That's why you don't cut it. Okay, that's, you, you shouldn't do that. And that's also why it's a shame for a man to have long hair, according to Hippocrates, because the male role is to eject semen, not retain it. It's totally bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. But when you read what they thought of the function of a woman's hair versus men, everything Paul says in that passage makes sense. It just makes sense. But it's so foreign to us. That we just, I mean, we, we know where babies come from. You know, we talk about genetics and, you know, do this in a Petri dish. And they're not doing that at all, okay? They're not doing that at all. This is Hippocrates, who at the time was like the leading figure. There's, even, there's, there's one great thing about the, the test of infertility. And that's just great, you know, how it, it, again, it involves, you know, having a woman smell something and, and the hair is involved. It just, it's just the craziest stuff you've ever read. But if that's what you're thinking, if that's what's in your head, when you read Paul, you're like, oh, well, of course. Of course, when we're in church, we should wear a, head, a covering over our hair because then it's an issue of modesty. Would you like go to church and just expose your genitals? <laughs> like, would you do that? Would you do that? I mean, that's essentially what Paul's saying. You people are nuts. Of course, he's writing to the Corinthians, and they, you know, they probably could, you know, they're doing everything. So, <clears throat> you know, he's like, you, you people are nuts. Of course, you should have, you know, your, your head covered when you go to pray and you, you do these things. And, and of course, it's a shame for a man to have long hair, again, because he's presupposing this function. A woman's hair is given to her as her covering, as her parabolion. This is her glory. 
you know, because it helps her to have children. And children are really important, okay? And, and then Paul throws in this thing about, now I'm, I'm also writing this because I, and I'm expressing my concerns because of the angels. There's, there's only one context for that. Apparently in the back of Paul's mind, he's like, you better get this under control. You better watch what you're doing. You better, you better, again, wear the appropriate things. You better behave the appropriate way. You know, you, you, you want to show that you're, you belong to a man. You belong to your husband. You're going to be modest. You're going to control your, your, sexual, your sexuality, your sexual behavior. Because if you don't, we've seen where that, what can result from that. You're being watched, pun intended. Okay, so in Paul's mind, this was a concern for him. It, it, to us, it's like, it's this most throwaway, bizarre, what in the world does that have to do with anything? But again, if you're reading it through those eyes, everything in the chapter makes sense. Uh, you know, in terms of what we do today, you know, I, I have Mennonites. You know, in, in my, my family, I'm not going to go tell them, hey, don't, you know, hey, let me tell you what the head covering is really about, you know. I'm not going <laughs> to, look. <laughs> and one of them is a pastor, too. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, look, if, if this is what you want to do and the, your teaching point is modesty, what, whatever, go ahead. Do, you know, that, that's a good idea. You know, you're, you're fine there. But, again, it has, a, it has quite a different context than what you'd think. The baptism thing you've, you've heard about before, reading the book, the fourth part here. Let's see how I'm doing on time. Okay, oh, I'm doing pretty well. In the book of Revelation, I have two chapters here that go through Revelation. And again, just pick out maybe three or four items that specifically link back to the Watcher story. The one chapter is about, again, this transgression of the Watchers, the Nephilim, and the Antichrist. Now, what I do in this chapter, just going to give you the, a sweeping overview here, is I summarize the Second Temple Jewish profile of what they expected as, you know, from a Messiah. And also, in turn, what they expected about the great messianic enemy. Because in their mind, there, there's Messiah, okay, he's going to come at you know, the end of days and all this stuff, he's going to get rid of the oppression. Well, he has an enemy. So to a Jew, what did that enemy look like? How do they think about it? Again, this great messianic enemy. There are certain things about the enemy's profile that in Jewish texts, again, of this period, were linked to certain figures in Jewish demonology. One of the main ones is Belial. It's also spelled as Beliar uh, in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The, the belief was that the great enemy of the Messiah, catch the reasoning, since the Messiah was the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, again, this, this divine Davidic figure, therefore, there were Jews who speculated that his enemy would also either be the incarnation of or under the control of Belial, who was the, 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 the dead, one of the Dead Sea Scroll terms for Satan. There were also, though, other Jews who thought, well, okay, it, it, it could be like an incarnation of Satan or something like that. And that's very familiar to us, you know, the way, you know, sort of Antichrist thinking is popularized. That's the normal one, again, for our day and age. 
But there are other texts that thought, well, no, wait a minute. Maybe it's not the incarnation of Satan himself. Maybe it's the incarnation of one of the fallen watchers. Because there are certain ways that the great enemy is described that link back into the Greek story, classical Greek story of the Titans. Which again, if you're, if you're familiar with the story of the Titans, and I go through this in the chapter, there are very explicit connections between the Greek Titan story and the Book of Enoch and Genesis 6 language. And, and just general uh, giant language in the Old Testament transmitted through the Septuagint. One of the ones that I talk about is Belos. Here, here's the, this, this is actually a description from, uh, it's, either, it's either Philo or a text called uh, Eupolemus. He talks about Belos, who was a giant, who was the son of Kronos. Again, if you know anything about the Titans, Kronos is an important Titan, who gets linked, he, he gets described as the person who built Babylon and the Tower of Babel. And then other Jewish texts link Belos specifically with Nimrod. And so again, if, here, here's, how, here's how I'm asking you to look at this stuff. Again, I'm not, I'm not presenting this as, oh, this, is, this should be our theology of Antichrist now. What I'm saying is that if you were living in the first century and you were having a conversation with a literate Second Temple Jew and you were talking about the Antichrist, this is going to be part of his conversation. This is how he's going to perceive this great enemy. And there are parts of it, there are parts of it that get, you can trace into the church fathers. By the way, in, in that chapter on, uh, on depravity, Irenaeus and Tyler Stewart would, would, would be buddies because Irenaeus also traced human depravity back to Genesis 6, not just Genesis 3. And again, he's a famous church father. But Irenaeus also tracked on this. He refers to uh, when he's discussing 666 in his comments about that passage in Revelation, Revelation 13. He gives a couple speculations for what the number might mean. One of them is Tetan. Tetan by Gematria equates out, you know, spells out in numbers 666. Tetan was one of the words for the Titans. And, and again, he's getting this from his acquaintance with Second Temple Jewish material. And, he, and he, he, he goes into the Titan story himself. So Irenaeus is, is a, a famous church father that very evidently had, had taken the time to read lots of this stuff, had probably lots of conversations with Jews or Jewish converts. And again, that helped him look at the Old Testament, look at certain things even in the New Testament, in a different way. And so Irenaeus is an important figure for this whole discussion um, because he's a good indication that Mike isn't just making this stuff up. Okay, he's a good indication that Mike is, is, is observing what Irenaeus thought and saying, hey, that's kind of interesting. Where did he get that? Where did he come up with that? And you can, again, trace the series of thoughts back in, in the primary texts. The second chapter of this section is about different things in the book of Revelation. Revelation 9 I, I talk about because it, it borrows, it, it has very, very explicit imagery to the release of the watchers. 
Again, connecting that this is the release of the, the, the guys from the pit, from the abyss. And there are things in the passage that link back into Enochian material. The 144,000 is kind of interesting. I, I personally would still put this, I'd need to see more on it. it I, I'd still sort of file this as, as, in Mike's head, sort of speculative, but I put it in the book. There, there's an article from, by a guy who, uh, it's actually two people, who published in a journal from South Africa. And it, it's a very long article, it's very detailed, but here's their view. They pick up on, when the 144,000 are described, they are described as being virgins who have not defiled themselves with women. And you think, well, who cares? <laughs> so what? I mean, you, like, it was okay to get married in the old, you know, old New Testament. Well, big deal. Well, th what they try to demonstrate, and I, I think, again, they, they present what I'd call a, a, a reasonable circumstantial case for it. At least that's my thinking now. There are certain things in the description in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 about the 144,000 that link back to Leviticus, Levitical language, the way priests were described. And we know priests were allowed to marry. So the question for them then becomes why this statement? He believes that the 144,000 are people selected by God to, he doesn't believe they're just humans, okay? He, he, they, they, they sort of waffle there because they, they differentiate them from, from the souls that are martyred under the throne and whatnot. But he thinks they are deliberately there to be representatives of God and they are presented as, you know, pure in terms of these are heavenly ones who have not defiled themselves with women. In other words, they are the counterparts to the watchers who just got released. And so they are part of this cosmic Armageddon conflict, the war between gods and men. Okay. Again, I, I think they build a, a good circumstantial case for it. I'm not completely persuaded of it yet. Um, but I thought it was worth putting in. The Antichrist from Dan tradition. This is also the 144,000. Oh, there's 12,000 from every tribe. What could be simpler? Yeah, until you count the tribes. You know, <laughs> until you actually look at, at the tribes that are missing. Okay. <laughs> okay, there's, you know, Ephraim. There's, there's a deal with Ephraim and Manasseh going on there, but the one that's omitted totally is Dan. And so you have this, you, ha you have a, a pretty long church uh, history tradition that the Antichrist would descend from the tribe of Dan. Okay, I don't believe that, that the point is the tribe of Dan. I think the point is the region of Dan, which is in Bashan. Same name. Okay, so that, in, again, in the chapter I talk about, well, if we were thinking region instead of tribe, where would that lead us? Because it's, it's Bashan, you know, it's the place of the serpent, you know, in the Old Testament. Talk a little bit about Gog and Armageddon. Again, Gog is the, the great enemy from the north. Okay, if you remember Unseen Realm, what is it about the north that's important? Tzaphon, it's the domain of Baal. Okay, that's not a coincidence. <laughs> uh, again, to, to, to cast Gog in that language, and I do a little bit about, there's a reason I think why, why Gog has never been identified successfully with a historical person, either in, in antiquity or, or currently, because I think the point is not 
to direct our attention to a specific person, it's to direct our attention again to cosmic evil that will, that will control whoever this Antichrist person is. And so I, I talk a little bit about that. And if you do that, again, you connect it back to Bashan. And then I go into, into connections between Gog and the Rephaim. Well, how in Gog are the Rephaim connected? Well, if Gog is coming from you know, the other parts of the earth, Safon, and if the Antichrist guy is coming from the same place, that's also the region of the Rephaim, the giants, Again, you can do the math from the rest of that point. Again, it's not hard to connect the ideas once you get that point of geographical orientation. Cosmic North, region of Bashan geographically. And there are specific, again, links to the Titans and one particular Titan, Typhon. Again, there's a, there's a whole article on how Daniel 11, Daniel 11 is sort of this chronology of the Antichrist that we get how Daniel 11 tracks on the story of Typhon in Greek you know, literature, okay, or, or vice versa, depending on your, your view of the authorship of Daniel. Okay, there are a number of connections, and, and why that's important is because the figure of Daniel 11, historically, everybody, wh whether they think Daniel was written in the 6th century, the 2nd century, everybody agrees that the person who fulfilled all of these things in Daniel 11 already and will you know that'll echo out into a future prophecy is who Everybody remember the name Antiochus. Antiochus the fourth Antiochus Epiphanes who is the Typhon figure in Greek literature again if you're a literate Second Temple Jew you're familiar with Hellenistic material these are not coincidences they all mean something they're all part of a matrix of ideas so it's a way to connect the Antichrist to another one of these watcher, titan, giant, supernatural bad guys. And so that's what I do in, in the chapter. Again, I'm just trying to show you in these two chapters how a second temple person who had knowledge of this material, how they would read Revelation. Not how Tim LaHaye reads it, okay? Or anybody else, Ritterboss or whoever. How would a second temple Jew read it? What thoughts would they think? What would pop out of their mouth in discussion if you had that guy in your small group study on Revelation? What he's going to be talking about is just going to frighten everybody else in the room. Okay? Because he is just on a totally different track because he has lots of this, this stuff floating around his head. And the last thing is the lake of fire, again, which if you follow the podcast, we did an episode on the lake of fire. And that, that language comes really explicitly out of Enoch. Lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, this is, this is where they're sent. They're sent to the abyss. Who's sent there? Well, the only ones we know that were actually sent there are the watchers. And who else do we find there in the Old Testament? The Rephaim. Again, these things are not coincidences. They don't just, they're not just random occurrences in the text. You have people, John writing Revelation, hooking you back into the Old Testament, hooking you back into Second Temple literature that he assumes you know. If you're literate, you know this. I don't have to spell everything out for you. Our problem is we don't know that stuff because we haven't read it. We can have it, we can read it, but the book here, again, we'll just end with that, is, is kind of an effort to you know, take 
10 chapters of that stuff. And it's, a, it's a little wider net than that. But anything that scholars would think is Enochian and try to get that in your head and it's like, okay, now let's go to these New Testament places and just see what pops out to you and how you would parse it if you were thinking this. So that, that's the book. How did I, how did I do on Hey, I, I still have four minutes on my... <laughs> okay, let's take a break and then we can do Q&A, so. Get some more coffee, get some donuts. Go home. <laughs>